grateful beneficiaries than his bitter politico-economic enemies. His power greatly alarmed them because he used it to work against rather than for their interests. Like other populares, he attempted to deal with unemployment, poverty, unfair taxes, excessive luxury consumption, land redistribution, rent gouging, usury, debt relief, and overall aristocratic avarice. Like every aristocratic reformer from Cleisthenes centuries before him in ancient Greece to Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 20th century United States, Caesar was branded a traitor to his class by members of that class. He had committed the unforgivable sin of trying to redistribute, albeit in modest portions, some of the wealth that the very rich tirelessly siphoned from state coffers and from the labor of the many. It was unforgivable that he should tamper with the system of upward expropriation that they embraced as their birthright. Caesar seems not to have comprehended that in the conflict between haves and have-nots, the haves are really the have-it-alls. The Roman aristocrats lambasted the palest reforms as the worst kind of thievery, the beginning of a calamitous revolutionary leveling, necessitating extreme countermeasures. And they presented their violent retaliation not as an ugly class expediency, but as an honorable act on behalf of Republican liberty. Only a handful of historians have signed on to Badian's indictment of senatorial rule in the late Republic. No administration in history has ever devoted itself so wholeheartedly to fleecing its subjects for the private benefit of its ruling class as Rome of the last age of the Republic. Such ruling class rapacity rarely parades in naked form. Those ensconced at the social apex utilize every advantage in money, property, education, organization, and prestige to maintain their ideological hegemony over the rest of society. They marshal a variety of arguments to justify their privileged position, arguments that are all the more sincerely embraced for being so self-serving. But ideology is not merely a promotion of class interest. The function of ideology is precisely to cloak narrowly selfish interests, wedding them to a more lofty and capacious view of society. This helps explain why the optimate's ideology carries such a familiar ring today. It contains the standard mystifying tenets of all ruling propertied classes throughout the ages. These might be summarized as follows. First and foremost, the oligarchic clique represents its own privileged special interests as tantamount to the general interest. Cicero laid the groundwork for future generations of elite propagandists when he argued that the well-being of the Republic and the entire society depended on the well-being of the prominent few who presided so wisely and resplendently over public affairs and whose high station gave proof of a deserving excellence. Second, Ruling-class protagonists warn that such things as doles, rent caps, and debt cancellations undermine the moral fiber of those indigents who are the beneficiaries, pandering to their profligate ways, at the expense of the more responsible and stable elements of society. 
Third, the ruling elites maintain that redistributive social programs deliver ruinous costs upon the entire society. There is not enough land for small farmers to be resettled, not enough funds for grain doles or public projects that would employ hard-up plebs. No notice is taken that there is always money enough for war and massive public subsidies to the wealthiest stratum. Fourth, when unable to openly attack popular reforms that bridle their own overweening greed, the oligarchs attack the reformers and their motives. They portray mass agitation not as a righteous resistance to economic injustice, but as class war, the work of unscrupulous, unstable, self-aggrandizing, power-lusting demagogues, who, in Cicero's words, inflame the passions of the unsophisticated multitude, but really do not have the people's interests at heart. Many latter-day historians are immersed in this age-old ruling ideological perspective. So they explain away Caesar's assassination in terms that are rather favorable to the assassins. They emphasize how Cicero and the other constitutionalists boasted of a republic founded on law and selfless virtue, but they take little notice of how these same constitutionalists swindled public lands from small farmers in violation of the law, plundered the provinces like pirates, taxed colonized peoples into penury, imposed back-breaking rents on rural and urban tenants, lacerated debtors with usurious interest rates, expanded the use of slave labor at the expense of free labor, manipulated auspices to stymie popular decisions, resisted even the most modest reforms, bought elections, undermined courts and officeholders with endless bribery, and repeatedly suspended the Constitution in order to engage in criminal acts of mass murder against democratic commoners and their leaders. Such were the steadfast Republicans upon whom most classical historians gaze so admiringly. As understood by the nobility, Republican liberty was first and foremost liberty for the aristocracy, freedom to savor every class prerogative without restraint and with only the appearance of public devotion, to enjoy all the benefits of civil society while burdened by none of the costs, and to grow still richer at the expense of everyone else. Whatever its Republican trappings, aristocratic liberty is essentially blue-blood plutocracy, the ruthless liberty of wealth that remains to this day inhospitable to any modicum of economic democracy. Those who think that politics and history are just all about power might wish to reflect on the late Republic. The wealthy class did not pursue power as an end in itself. Power was and still is an instrumental value. It enables the rich to secure and advance their opportunities to profit off human labor, exercise decisive control over disadvantaged groups, monopolize public resources and private markets, expand overseas holdings, and plunder government treasuries. Power enables them to preserve their precious privileges, their fabulous way of life, and the one thing that makes such a life possible, their immense wealth. To be sure, 
Ambitious individuals may pursue power as an end in itself, as a way to advance their unprincipled careers and cover themselves with glory. But to see personal ambitions and jealousies as the sum total of political conflict is to rule out larger interests. Then, what is called politics becomes nothing more than the jockeying for wealth and power within a class that already holds a monopoly on wealth and power. In fact, even a frenetic careerist like Cicero held views that were more than merely self-promotional. Reflecting the genuine concerns of the wealthy owning class of which he was a part, and of the especially privileged and empowered coterie within that class, the senatorial oligarchs, whose matchless leader he dreamed of becoming. Throughout history, in the name of liberty, owning classes have opposed political leaders who have sought a more equitable distribution and use of wealth. And in the name of stability and public safety, they have repeatedly surrendered some of their own power to autocratic leaders dedicated to preserving the privileged socioeconomic order. So it has been in just about every class society before and since the late Republic. Power is not usually an end in itself. It is the precious means by which wealth is accumulated, preserved, and enjoyed. The climber who seeks above all else to promote himself becomes a ready tool of wealth. That career path is far less risky and more rewarding than the one trod by those who champion the cause of the dispossessed and powerless. The same optimates who feared Julius Caesar's dictatorial power were able to hand dictatorial power to Pompey during the public disturbances of 52 BC in complete violation of constitutional practice. The senators appointed Pompey consul without a colleague so that he could exercise a one-man veto-proof rule. They also granted him total control over the treasury and over the corn supply of the entire empire for five years. Both these moves also violated the Constitution. By turning to Pompey in this manner, the Senate oligarchs revealed their readiness to jettison Republican principles when necessary. Consider other examples of senatorial extra-constitutionality. Some of Caesar's antagonists in the Senate inquired into the conduct of his Gallic campaign, going so far as to urge that he be handed over to the enemy. In 58 BC, they attempted to promote a mutiny among his officers, and treasonously conspired with Ariovistus, a German leader and battlefield antagonist in Gaul, to assassinate Caesar. In a pre-battle meeting, Ariovistus boasted to Caesar that many Roman nobles would richly reward him if he put Caesar to death, so messengers sent by the Senate Optimates themselves had informed him. In 51, Senate leaders collaborated with the Gauls in an attempt to undo Caesar, urging them to hold out for another year. Such acts of criminal treachery and treason represented drastic departures from proper constitutional practice, yet they have evoked little critical comment from historians past or present. The senatorial oligarchs openly demonstrated their intolerance of constitutional checks when they were the ones being checked. In 49, for example, 
the Senate passed a decree ordering Caesar to dismiss his army and surrender Gaul to Senate-picked generals, failing which he would be deemed a traitor. Serving as a people's tribune, Mark Antony issued a perfectly lawful veto of this decree. Yet he and another tribune were then forced to flee in order to save themselves from the optimate's potentially lethal wrath. The death of Caesar did not bring the quiet restoration of a Senate-dominated republic, as the assassins had hoped. With a civil war brewing, the Optimates and their wealthy allies displayed an unwillingness to part with even a modest portion of their enormous fortunes to pay for an army strong enough to vanquish the Caesarians. Our naughtiest political problem is shortage of money, Cicero complained. The very rich become more obdurate every day at the mention of a special levy. The proceeds of one percent, thanks to the scandalously low returns put in by the rich folk, proved thoroughly inadequate. The rich may want power, but they do not like paying for it with their own money. At about this time there emerged upon the scene the relatively unknown youth Gaius Octavius. Caesar's great-nephew and adopted son, later known as Octavianus or Octavian. He was destined to become Rome's first emperor. Octavian initially allied himself with the senatorial party against Antony. In 43 BC, when just 19 years old, he led an army of Caesar's veterans, whose loyalty he nurtured, defeating Antony at Mutina. The Senate granted him the rank of senator. He marched on Rome and compelled a reluctant Senate to recognize him as Caesar's son and heir and nominate him consul for the remainder of 43. The next year, however, Octavian formed a compact with Antony and Lepidus in what became known as the Second Triumvirate. The three leaders pushed through a law granting them dictatorial powers for five years. In 42, the triumvirs defeated the senatorial party in the Battle of Philippi, at which time Brutus and Cassius committed suicide. Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian now ruled supreme. The triumvirs recalled that Caesar had been killed by men whom he had forgiven and favored with office and honors. These same men then had plotted against the triumvirs themselves, and judging from the fate of Gaius Caesar, had demonstrated that their evil nature cannot be tamed by kindness. Hence the triumvirate opted for proscriptions, hunting down and killing Caesar's assassins and their associates. Antony had already made a point of having Cicero tracked in 43. The story goes that while trying to escape, Cicero leaned his head out of his litter to see who was approaching and was summarily decapitated by his pursuers. So was silenced the golden voice of Rome's privileged coterie. The triumvirate itself eventually came apart. Lepidus was demoted by his two partners for supposedly collaborating with Pompey's son and for claiming Sicily as his own. In 36 BC, Octavian put him under house arrest at Circeli. In 31, Octavian vanquished Antony at Actium, on the west coast of Greece and now ruled supreme, dubbing his regime the Principate, Principate, literally 
rule by the first man, or what amounted to rule by kingship. In 27 BC, Octavian appeared before a senate purged of his opponents and made a great show of offering up all his powers to that stately body and to the people. Having reached the ripe old age of 35, he professed a desire to retire. As if on cue, the Senate showed itself overwhelmed by his selflessness and implored him to remain at the helm. Deeply touched by their entreaties, Octavian decided to remain in office for the rest of his life. The Senate immediately conferred upon him the title of Augustus, by which he was henceforth known. It was a name applicable to all things godly and astral. Octavian embraced the illustrious title along with the additionally exalted appellation of Caesar, becoming the first of a long line of absolutist Roman rulers, all of whom were called Caesar. Imperator, or emperor, became a title monopolized by Octavian and his successors. As Augustus, he was never again visited by a self-effacing desire to retire. He reigned for 45 years, dying in A.D. 14. All of Rome's emperors wielded substantially more power than Julius Caesar. Yet the senators and the rich in general went along with them. As Tacitus notes of their ready submission to Augustus, advancing in wealth and place in proportion to their servility, and drawing profit out of the new order of affairs. While Caesar had opened the Senate to talented men of humble origin, Augustus kept the Senate as a preserve for the rich, even creating new patrician members. As the elder Pliny reports, senators began to be selected and judges appointed on the score of wealth, and wealth became the sole adornment of magistrate and military commander. Augustus raised the property qualifications for senators from 8,000 to 12,000 gold pieces, and if any preferred member found that his estate fell short of this, the young ruler made up the difference from the privy purse. He banned publication of Senate proceedings, making that body less open to public criticism, undoing one of Julius Caesar's reforms. And he purged the Senate of those who might prove less than friendly to the Principate. It is not hard to divine why the nobility opposed the more conciliatory Caesar, but accepted the more autocratic Augustus and his successors, showing no nostalgia for their beloved republic. Unlike Caesar, Augustus promoted no economic agenda on behalf of the masses. He dissolved all worker guilds except long-standing ones that were conducting legitimate business, doubtless sharing Suetonius's opinion that many collegia were, in reality, organizations for committing every sort of crime. Augustus manifested no interest in debt reduction or land allotments, except for his army veterans, and was indifferent to the well-being of the rural population in general. The two taxes he initiated, a sales tax and death duties, were regressive, leaving aristocratic wealth untouched, all of which the nobility could not fail to appreciate. Augustus did institute various reforms relating to marriage laws, administrative practice, and religious observances. 
These did nothing to ease the plight of the plebs or diminish precipitous class inequities. Unlike Julius Caesar, who turned to the popular assemblies, Augustus bypassed the assemblies and eradicated whatever limited functions they still possessed, moves that further pleased the affluent class. In addition, Augustus sought to protect inherited wealth and the slaveocracy by decreeing that slaveholders could not free more than a limited portion of their chattel. Freedom for slaves led to intermarriage with free citizens, and Augustus was concerned that native Roman stock not be tainted by foreign servile blood. By freeing slaves, the owner could avoid feeding, clothing, and housing them in their less productive later years. But had manumission become too common, it would have weakened the established order of slavery itself and created a realm unduly dependent upon free labor. Augustus's restriction on manumission illustrates how the state puts the overall interests of the owning class ahead of the immediate pocketbook interests of particular owners. Augustus craftily downplayed the ostentatious trappings of power while husbanding its substance. He maintained an appearance of consultation vis-a-vis -vis the Senate, delegating many responsibilities to that body, but little decision-making power. He retained full control over the provinces and made certain to preserve his command over military forces, including a large body of guards in the heart of the capital. The subtle tyrant, as Gibbon calls him, crafted an absolute monarchy disguised by the forms of a commonwealth. After some five centuries, the Roman Republic, with its limited but real popular liberties, came to an end under Augustus's rule, though certain of its forms remained for some time. For generations, the senatorial class continued to play little more than a limited advisory role in civic institutions. The senators preferred to ignore the fact that real power had migrated out of these institutions into an imperial regime. The self-respect of the senatorial classes depended on this denial. Augustus preserved the Senate's dignity but stole its independence, leaving it with the appearance of authority. More important to the senators, he fortified their privileged class position. Indeed, under his rule they grew still wealthier, though on occasion the emperor had to curb their cupidity so that the parasites might not destroy the very social organism upon which they battened. At the same time, the Senate House remained a prestigious place in which to dawdle and debate and exercise advisory responsibilities. The point to be remembered is that the senators seemed untroubled by this loss of power and by the loss of their sacred republican institutions and traditions. No furious cabals in the Senate or in any other wealthy circles plotted to dispatch the usurper. The ancient liberties of the Republic, such as they were, shrank away, and Rome under the emperors devolved into a military dictatorship. During the Republic, satirists and mimes readily directed their barbs and lampoons against leading political figures. So Cicero hoped to gauge popular reaction to Caesar's assassination from the skits put on by mimes. Under the Empire, however, 
Mimes and satirists had no option but to range themselves on the side of the emperor, targeting those who were in bad odor at court, or sticking to trivial topics and avoiding politically touchy ones. Public debate became increasingly superficial in content, and by way of compensation, increasingly elaborate in style. In the repressive atmosphere of the imperial period, students of rhetoric were trained to make speeches that were politically safe, but steeped in florid locutions and melodramatic histrionics. Tacitus, who was old enough to remember the finer level of debate of the late Republic, complained, what poor quality, and how incredible they are in content. The subject matter is far removed from reality. It was the victory of style over substance, as dictated by the political circumstances of the day. The loss of popular freedom also brought the systematic suppression of workers' guilds and other people's organizations. Considered the revealing correspondence early in the second century A.D., between Trajan and the younger Pliny, who was serving abroad as governor of Bithynia. Having witnessed a widespread fire that destroyed many private homes and two public buildings, Pliny requested that he be allowed to organize a fire brigade, limited to only 150 members, all of whom would be genuine firemen, he assured the emperor. He added that the privileges granted shall not be abused, it will not be difficult to keep such small numbers under observation, but Trajan would have none of it. We must remember that it is organizations like these that have been responsible for the political disturbances in your province, particularly in its towns. If people assemble for a common purpose, whatever name we give them and for whatever reason, they soon turn into a political club. Trajan suggested that firefighting equipment be made available to individual property owners, and that help could be marshaled ad hoc from the crowds that assembled during a blaze. Clearly, the emperor was less concerned about fighting house fires than preventing political ones. Early in the realm of Augustus, opposition to one-man rule died out in the Senate, and over the next 400 years, no serious attempt was ever made by the senators to restore the Republic. This or that emperor might act in a manner that incensed them, but their remedy was always to attempt to supplant him with another emperor, rather than risk the popular challenge to their interests that democracy and an end to dictatorship might invite. Those senators who conspired against Caligula, Nero, and Domitian were animated by self-preservation rather than by a principled dedication to republican liberty. They attacked the person of the despot, but never the despotic authority of the office. In sum, when their class interests were at stake, the senators had no trouble choosing political dictatorship over the most anemic traces of popular rule and egalitarian economic reform. They seldom hesitated to depart from their own constitution when expediency dictated. Through the last 80 years of the Republic, they repeatedly invoked the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, suspending all constitutional protections by raison d'etat. So common was their tendency to turn to one-man absolutism 
even generations before the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, that Appian voices surprise about one occasion when they did not. Commenting on their struggle against Gaius Gracchus in 122-121, he writes, I am amazed that they never even thought of appointing a dictator, although they had often in crises of this sort found salvation in absolute power, a course of action which had proved most useful to their predecessors. As we have heard, instead of appointing a dictator, the Optimates preserved their republican virtue by slaughtering Gaius and his followers. The description Aurelius Victor gave several centuries after Caesar is worth recalling. The nobility gloried in idleness and at the same time trembled for their wealth, the use and the increase of which they accounted greater than eternal life itself. When push came to shove, their vast holdings meant more to them than state power, as long as state power was in the hands of someone who protected their vast holdings. Chapter 11 Bread and Circuses The rabblement hooted and clapped their chapped hands, and threw up their sweaty nightcaps and uttered such a deal of stinking breath because Caesar refused the crown. Julius Caesar, Act 1, Scene 2 The critic who sees ancient Rome as riddled with class injustice is likely to be judged by today's Ciceronians as guilty of the sin of presentism. In other words, guilty of anachronistically imposing modern-day values on a past society. But if we uncritically immerse ourselves in the context of a past society, seeing it only as it saw itself, then we are adopting the illusions it had of itself. Thus, when modern classical historians label Rome's popular leaders as ambitious demagogues, they are not making an objective historical judgment, but uncritically sharing the characterizations propagated by elitist commentators such as Cicero. Likewise, when they embraced the notion that Rome ruled for the benefit of its far-flung subjects, they are uncritically accepting the self-serving illusions that any imperialistic system has of itself. In short, those who insist that we perceive the past purely on its own terms, assuming that were even possible, often forget that this usually means seeing it through the eyes of its predominant class, the class that practically monopolized the recorded commentary of that day. In regard to the late republic, this means the wealthy oligarchs. This rule of contextual immersion, if I may call it that, is regularly violated by its proponents when it suits their own ideological proclivities. Hence, many historians make little effort to immerse themselves in the oppressive context that incited popular unrest, little effort to see the proletariats struggle the way the proletariat saw it themselves. In regard to Rome, seldom is it asked, what were the human needs around which the plebs struggled? What were the actual conditions of misery and exploitation they faced? Were popular disturbances simply a manifestation of irrational low-life troublemaking, as claimed by optimate leaders, or a response to harshly unjust conditions? 
Gentlemen historians have seldom thought well of the common people of history, when they bothered to think about them at all. Cicero was part of an already established tradition when he repeatedly described the plebs urbana as the city dirt and filth, sorde sorbis et facem, the scum from out of the city, exorbis faces, the unruly and inferior, a starving, contemptible rabble. He acknowledges that they are starving, but sees it as their own fault. And whenever the people mobilized against class injustice, they became in Cicero's mind that most odious of all creatures, the mob. Long before Cicero, Polybius was asserting that the masses are always fickle, filled with lawless desires, unreasoning anger, and violent passions. A century after the late Republic, Plutarch described Caesar as stirring up and attaching to himself the numerous diseased and corrupted elements in the polity. Asconius referred to the supporters of Claudius as a great crowd of slaves and rabble, an ignorant mob. Later on, Appian wrote of the poor and hot-headed, and saw Caesar as introducing laws to win the favor of the mob. The many classicists who follow Cicero's lead are no better. Javits records how 19th-century historians bemoaned the boundless appetite of the Roman mob. He quotes Pullman, The communist idea of sharing one another's vittles for these proletarians became second nature. Various present-day writers refer to the mob, the idle city rabble, the emotional masses, who were no more than the tool of power the stupid, selfish, good-for-nothing mob, the parasitic mob of the metropolis, the worthless elements. Scullard sniffs at the fickle and idle urban mob as if their idleness were purely of their own choosing. Meanwhile, the parasitic aristocratic idlers, who lived in obscene opulence off the labor of slaves and plebs, earn not a harsh word from him or most other writers. Momsen refers to the lazy and hungry rabble. For him, the people's assemblies were agitated by special passions in which intelligence was totally lost. That terrible urban proletariat was utterly demoralized, sometimes stupid and sometimes knavish. And Christian Meyer, agreeing with the Roman nobles who referred to the urban mass as the bilge of the city, denounces Rome's laborers, traders, and artisans for trying to assume a level of political participation that was far beyond their capacity. Disapproving renditions of the Roman proletarii have enjoyed such widespread currency as to have influenced even dissenting egalitarian writers such as Karl Marx. He described the dispossessed peasants of the late Republic who crowded into Rome as a mob of do-nothings. In more recent times, radical journalist cum classical historian I.F. Stone characterized the Roman plebs as a rabble, comparing them unfavorably to Athens' citizenry. And the liberal Lewis Mumford referred to Rome's parasitic mob. Juvenal writes scornfully of the mob of Remus, 
and its preoccupation with panem et circenses, bread and circuses, a phrase that has echoed down through the ages, adding to the image of Rome's proletariat as a shiftless, volatile mass addicted to endless rounds of free vittles and free entertainment. Scholar denounces that the city mob was far too irresponsible to exercise political power. Rather, it wanted panem et circenses. And Mumford sees only parasitism in the dual handout of bread and circuses. Historians have been ever alert to the corrupting influence that state assistance might have upon the poor. Sallust speaks of the populace who are now demoralized by largesse and the public distribution of corn. Forced into idleness, they become infected with vicious principles and need to be prevented from disturbing the government. Appian tells us that the corn ration attracted the idly destitute and hot-headed elements of the Italian population to the capital, who contrast unfavorably with those who possessed property in good sense. Many centuries after Sallust and Appian, John Dickinson demonstrated that little has changed. He vents his disapproval of Roman welfare policy, denouncing Caesar for appealing to the cupidity and self-interest of those who desired to be supported at the expense of the state, and for encouraging the voters to act from the baser motives of human nature. Dickinson never explains why the impoverished plebs, many of them up from slavery or from families dispossessed by land-grabbing aristocrats, were manifesting baser motives by struggling for subsidized bread prices, land reform, public jobs, debt easement, and rent control. Nor does he ever reproach the nobility for their baser motives, their self-indulgent plundering of the poorer classes and the public treasure. In a similar spirit, Scullard writes that Claudius's law to change the subsidized distribution of grain into a completely free dole hastened the demoralization of the people. In contrast, Sulla's abolition of grain distribution is termed a reform and invites no critical comment for the hardship it must have inflicted upon the poor. Contrary to the image propagated by past and present historians, Dole recipients did not live like parasites off the bread they received, actually a meager wheat or corn ration used for making bread and gruel. Man and woman cannot live by bread alone, not even at the simple physiological level. The plebs needed money for rent, clothing, cooking oil, and other necessities. Most of them had to find work, low-paying and irregular as it might be. The bread dole often was a necessary supplement, the difference between survival and starvation, but it was never a total sustenance that allowed people to idle away their days. In any case, we might question why so many scholars have judged the Roman people as venal and degraded just because they demanded affordable bread and were concerned with having enough to feed themselves and their children. Alan Cameron is one of the few writers, along with Saint-Croix, who takes issue with the historical and somewhat hysterical image of the freeloading plebs. 
That notorious idle mob of layabouts sponging off the state is little more than a figment of middle-class prejudice, ancient and modern alike. As with bread, so with circuses. Cameron remarks, It was not the people's fault that public entertainments, being in origin religious festivals, were provided free. At any one time, almost half the free adult population of Rome could be accommodated in its circuses, arenas, and theaters, Lewis Mumford calculates. Even in a provincial town like Pompeii, the amphitheater held 20,000, likely more than half the adult inhabitants. Mumford seems to think that attendance at the amphitheater became the proletariat's principal occupation. Lapsing into psychobabble, he asks us to believe that the commoners sought to escape their own self-loathing and desire for death by pursuing a violent desire to impose a humiliating death on others in the Roman arena. There is no denying that the games and races help the poor to forget their grievances for a while, acting as a popular distraction, not unlike mass sporting events today. The emperors seem to be well aware of the diversionary social control function that the spectacle served, which was why they maintained them, regardless of cost. Some writers forget that it was not the poor who pandered to the baser emotions by creating and financing the awful bloodletting of the amphitheater, nor were they the only ones to attend. Perone writes that the circuses were the major sport of rich and poor alike. Probably a higher proportion of wealthy nobles and equestrians frequented the games, seated in reserved front-row stalls that afforded them the best view. In the amphitheater, Juvenal reports, all the best seats are reserved for the classes who have the most money. Mumford remarks that the great passages of the amphitheater were used as a vomitorium. From this we might deduce that a fair portion of the attending crowd were well fixed, for only they had the wherewithal to gorge themselves on large quantities of rich foods, then induce vomiting in repeated rounds of Vomunt tout edunt, edunt tout vomant. Emperor Augustus himself admitted to enjoying the games, and Emperor Tiberius's son eagerly presided over the gladiatorial contests, displaying an inordinate delight in the slaughter, though it be of men who mattered little. The rich and well-born not only promoted and patronized the arena games, but occasionally participated in them. Patrician children displayed their horsemanship. Young peers vied with one another in chariot races. Some knights and the son of an erstwhile praetor voluntarily engaged in displays of combat in a grand spectacle produced by Caesar. One senator desired to contend in full armor, but refrained when Caesar voiced his acute displeasure at the idea. Portrayed as nothing more than a blood-lusting rabble, the plebs actually were sometimes critical of what they witnessed at arena spectacles. The ceremonies to dedicate Pompey's theater included a battle between a score of elephants and men armed with javelins. The event did not go as intended. The slaughter of the elephants proved more than the crowd could countenance. One giant creature brought to its knees by the missiles crawled about, 
ripping shields from its attackers and tossing them into the air. Another, pierced deeply through the eye with a javelin, fell dead with a horrifying crash. The elephants shrieked bitterly as their tormentors closed in. Some of them refused to fight, treading about frantically with trunks raised toward heaven as if lamenting to the gods. In desperation, the beleaguered beasts tried to break through the iron palisade that corralled them. When they had lost all hope of escape, they turned to the spectators as if to beg for their assistance with heartbreaking gestures of entreaty deploring their fate with a sort of wailing. Their pitiful shrieks moved the arena crowd to tears and brought them to their feet, cursing Pompey. The audience was overcome by a feeling that these great mammals had something in common with humankind. Another instance might suffice. In 46, to celebrate his Gallic triumph and his third consulship, Caesar produced a series of spectacles. Lions were hunted down and slaughtered in the circus. A naval battle was staged on a hollowed tract of the Campus Martius, flooded for the occasion, and in a grand finale. Two armies, respectively composed of war captives and condemned criminals, each side consisting of hundreds of foot soldiers, cavalry, and a score of elephants, waged a battle to the death. But the plebs were more distressed than enthralled by the bloody spectacle. As Dio records, they criticized Caesar for the great number who were slain, charging that he had not himself become satiated with slaughter and was further exhibiting to the populace symbols of their own miseries. In addition, an outcry was raised because Caesar had collected most of the funds unjustly and had squandered them on such a wanton display. Who actually composed the Roman proletariat, this heartless mob who wept for tormented elephants and sometimes deplored the arena's dissipation of blood and treasure? Who might be this idle rabble who organized into political clubs and workers' guilds and engaged in forum meetings, demonstrations, and street insurgencies? The mobs of 18th and 19th century England and France are described by upper-class critics of those times as composed of beggars, convicts, and other low-life detritus. But records reveal that rebel crowds consisted of farm laborers, masons, and various other kinds of craftsmen, along with shopkeepers, wine merchants, cooks, porters, domestic servants, miners, and urban laborers, almost all of fixed abode, some temporarily unemployed, only a handful of whom were vagrants or had criminal records. The rebels of the Paris Commune of 1871, sentenced to death or imprisonment by the reactionary courts, consisted of carpenters, tin workers, watchmakers, bookbinders, teachers, house painters, locksmiths, tailors, tanners, stonecutters, bricklayers, cobblers, dressmakers, and numerous other occupations. Still others listed themselves as medical student, accountant, cashier, man of letters, and head of primary school. About half the craftsmen and skilled workers of Paris disappeared in the summary mass executions of 1871. 
The long-standing stereotype of popular mobs as fickle, brutish, rootless, and mindlessly destructive was elaborated by Gustave Le Bon in his La Foule, translated into English in 1869 as The Crowd, a book that has been kept in print and assigned to generations of students for over 130 years. Although Le Bon wrote in the relatively tranquil late 19th century, remarks Leonard Richards, he managed to sound like an aristocrat dashing off a passionate indictment of the French Revolution several hours before it became his turn to meet the guillotine. Challenging Le Bon, George Roudet shows that the mobbish actions of the 18th century were not wanton, irrational affairs, but forms of social protest against unaffordable rents, food prices, and crushing taxes. The riots often were coordinated actions, targeting particular officials, merchants, granaries, landlords, and other culpable persons and places, depending on the issue. They agitated not only for bread but for decent wages, the security of their homes, and the right to dissent and organize unions. Roudet concludes that rioters did not consist of the lawless riffraff imagined by those historians who have taken their cue from the prejudiced accounts of contemporary observers. So with ancient Rome. While Cicero characterized the activist elements among the plebs as exiles, slaves, madmen, runaways, criminals, and assassins from the jail. In fact, they were masons, carpenters, shopkeepers, scribes, glaziers, butchers, blacksmiths, coppersmiths, bakers, dyers, rope makers, weavers, fullers, tanners, metal workers, scrap dealers, teamsters, dockers, porters, and various day jobbers. The toiling proletariat of Rome. This proletariat was quite capable of exercising critical judgment. For instance, in July 45, as Cicero himself records, the people showed their displeasure at Caesar's monarchical pretensions, refraining from applauding his statue when it was being carried with those of the gods in a procession. They retained enough historic memory and enough regard for their rights to nurse a deep loathing of would-be kings. Their disapproving silence pleased Cicero enough to cause him to enter a rare positive comment about the plebs urbana. How splendidly the crowd behaved. In this one instance, at least, they were not a foul rabble, but a crowd. Many of Rome's proletarians were ex-slaves or the sons of slaves. Most were almost as poor as slaves. They sometimes worked alongside slaves and were inclined to feel a common interest with the servile population on many basic issues. In parts of Sicily, free farmhands joined in common cause with slaves to rebel against big planters. An incident from Tacitus speaks volumes. In A.D. 61, the city prefect was murdered in his bedchamber by one or more of his slaves. By ancient custom, when a master was murdered by a slave, all servi in the household had to be put to death. In this instance, it meant the extermination of some 400 souls, including women and children. The possibility of such a mass execution caused a public outcry, compelling the Senate to hold a formal debate on the issue. 
One of the senior members of the Senate spoke at length in support of the executions, maintaining that the slaveholders' interests demanded that there be no departure from ancient practice, no matter how harsh the outcome. If all 400 slaves are not executed, who among us will be safe, he argued. There were a few uneasy outcries, but no senator took the floor to denounce the measure, which was passed without further debate. This mass execution, however, did evoke angry protests from the plebs, who assembled outside the Senate House armed with stones and torches. Nero had to bring out the troops to line the route over which the condemned passed. Of course, Tacitus refers to the protesters as the mob, but he makes no critical reference to the lynch mob mentality that prevailed within the Senate House among those who sanctioned this mass murder. The deep sense of moral outrage expressed by the protesters signaled a sympathetic bond between impoverished slaves and impoverished plebs. For good reason, writes Plutarch, did Cato fear restiveness among the poorest citizens, for they were always the first to kindle the flame among the people. The Roman plebs played a creative democratic role by providing vital support to the various populares, including an exceptional leader like Caesar who was able to win their backing not because they were mesmerized by his demagogic ploys, but because they strongly favored his reformist policies. What sparse evidence we have of proletarian activism, as provided by Plutarch and a few others, is virtually ignored by modern-day classical historians. Regarding Tiberius Gracchus's agrarian reform, Plutarch writes, It was above all, the people themselves who did most to stoke Tiberius's energy and ambitions by inscribing slogans and appeals on porticos, monuments, and the walls of houses, calling upon him to recover the public land for the poor. Also remember how the people directed their outrage at Tiberius's assassin, Nasica, causing him to flee Rome. And Gaius Gracchus, who left his home on the fashionable Palatine Hill to live among the poor near the Forum, was elected tribune for a second time, though he was not a candidate and did not canvass for the office, but the people were eager to have it so. After he put forth his reform legislation, a great multitude began to gather in Rome from all parts of Italy to support him. Gaius won the whole-hearted devotion of the people, and they were prepared to do almost anything in the world to show their goodwill. After the Gracchi were assassinated, public acknowledgement of their existence was officially proscribed. The oligarchs were intent upon expurgating the collective historical memory. Yet the populace continued to commemorate the brothers. Plutarch offers a moving vignette. The people were cowed and humiliated by the collapse of the democratic cause, but they soon showed how deeply they missed and longed for the Gracchi. Statues of the brothers were set up in a prominent part of the city, the places where they had fallen were declared to be holy ground, and the first fruits of the season were offered up there throughout the year. Many people even sacrificed to the Gracchi every day, 
and worshipped their statues as though they were visiting the shrines of gods. Several years after Catiline's death, the plebs adorned his tomb as formerly that of the Gracchi, with flowers and garlands. Nota bene, the people never offered memorial tributes to Cicero, Cato, Sulla, Catullus, Milo, Brutus, Cassius, or any other prominent senatorial conservative. In 88 BC, more than 30 years after the Gracchi, when the reactionary Sulla marched his army into Rome in violation of a sacred constitutional prohibition against military units within the city limits, the plebs greeted the troops with barrages of missiles so intense as to make them waver. And in 67, when the optimate catalyst proposed that the people call for the appointment of a dictator for six months to deal with an emergency, the crowd hissed the hated name Sulla. On the eve of civil war, in February 49, Cicero assessed the bleak prospects of the optimate cause by noting that the populace and the lower orders sympathize with the other side, and many are eager for revolution. A few years later, the proletarians, still possessing enough historical memory of Sulla as the bloodletting champion of the aristocracy, pulled down his statue along with Pompey's. Early in his career, when Caesar delivered a funeral oration in the Forum in memory of his Aunt Julia, he dared to laud the late Popularis Marius, who had remained a taboo topic since the Sulla dictatorship. When some individuals began to raise a cry against Caesar, the people answered with loud shouts and clapping in his favor, expressing their joyful surprise and satisfaction at his having, as it were, brought up again from the grave those honors of Marius, which for so long a time had been lost to the city. In 70, and again in 67, 66, and 64, Radical tribunes packed the assemblies and launched demonstrations and electoral campaigns by mobilizing the collegia, those guilds of freedmen, slaves, and free poor. Such mass actions were enough to cause the Senate to pass a decree dissolving all but a few of the more innocuous collegia, depriving the popular movement of its key organizations. Popular support bolstered Caesar on more than one occasion. In 62 BC, while serving as praetor, he and Caecilius Metellus, a tribune of the people, were suspended from office by senatorial decree for introducing what Suetonius describes only as inflammatory bills that Caesar stubbornly championed on the floor of the Senate. Threatened with force, Caesar hastened home, deciding to live in temporary retirement because, writes Suetonius, the times allowed him no alternative. On the following day, however, the populace made a spontaneous move towards Caesar's house, riotously offering to put him back in his post, but he restrained their ardor. The Senate was so taken by his unexpectedly correct attitude that they showered him with warm praise and restored him to his praetorship. One can suspect that the restoration was at least in part prompted by a desire to calm the popular agitation. Likewise, 
Caesar's later attempts at detisement were not entirely of his own initiative, but were propelled by democratic forces that struggled unsuccessfully for cancellation of all creditor claims against the poor. More than once did the ordinary Romans put a check on Caesar himself. On one occasion, while he was seated in a golden chair at the rostra to view a public ceremony, Antony entered the forum and approached him with a diadem wreathed with laurel. There was a slight and scattered cheer, Plutarch records, made by the few who were planted there for that purpose, but when Caesar refused it, there was universal applause. Caesar declined a second offer, again to enthusiastic approval. There seems little doubt that his reluctance was much fortified by the strong popular sentiment against a kingship. The era of kings, 753 to 509 BC, had been a time of special autocracy and repression for the common people, enough to sear their historical memory, leaving them still intolerant of royal pretenders over four centuries later. In all, the proletariat played a crucial but much-ignored role in the struggle for democratic policies. They showed themselves to be neither a mindless mob nor a shiftless rabble, but a politically aware force, capable of registering preferences in accordance with their needs, able to distinguish friend from foe. That their political efforts have been deemed worthy of little more than passing condemnation is but a further reflection of the class biases shared by both ancient and modern historians. Lord Acton refers to the convictions, errors, prejudices, and passions that urge the masses of mankind and sway their rulers. The image is a familiar one. The people are a great beast, irrational and prone to error, who sway rulers toward misadventure. Seldom acknowledged is the converse, the numerous occasions when rulers have misled the people, the times when popular sentiment sought to restrain the potentates and deflect them from a damaging course. Also downplayed are the times when the people have pursued social betterment and more equitable and more democratic policies only to face unforgiving opposition from those at the apex of the social pyramid. To repeat, we hear that we must avoid imposing present values upon past experience, and we must immerse ourselves in the historic context under study. But few historians immerse themselves in the grim and embattled social experience of the Roman proletariat. If anything, they see the poor especially the rebellious poor, through the prism of their own class bias, the same bias shared by ancient historians from Polybius and Cicero to Tacitus and Valeus. In the one-sided record that is called history, it has been a long-standing practice to damn popular agitation as the work of riffraff and demagogues. As far as the gentlemen historians can see, Insurgency is not inspired by legitimate grievances, but by the misplaced and manipulated impulses of the insurgents. The common people of ancient Rome had scant opportunity to leave a written record of their views and struggles. Among the surviving primary sources, 
there exists little information on how the plebs urbana organized their collegia and how they felt about wages, prices, taxes, wars, land policy, or employment problems. Although we can draw certain inferences, history leaves us with only fragmentary impressions of their tribulations. Still, as I have tried to show, what we know of the common people tells us that they displayed a social consciousness and sense of justice that was usually superior to anything possessed by their would-be superiors. In the highly skewed accounts of what is called history, Cicero, Brutus, Cato, and other oligarchs come down to us as the defenders of republican liberty, while Caesar who tried to move against their power and privilege and do something for the poor, comes down to us as a tyrant and usurper. And the people of Rome themselves, the anonymous masses upon whose shoulders the populares stood, come down to us hardly at all, or most usually as a disreputable mob. They who struggled against all odds with all the fear and courage of ordinary humans whose names we shall never know, whose blood and tears we shall never see, whose cries of pain and hope we shall never hear. To them we are linked by a past that is never dead nor ever really past. And so when the best pages of history are finally written, it will be not by princes, presidents, prime ministers, or pundits, nor even by professors, but by the people themselves. For all their faults and shortcomings, the people are all we have. Indeed, we are they. Appendix A Note on Pedantic Citations and Vexatious Names My desire has been to make the classical sources used herein accessible to the lay listener. Most present-day historians of antiquity seem determined to make them inaccessible, a fact that itself might be indicative of the pedantic and elitist nature of their training. In regard to ancient sources, they resort to a mode of Latin citation so severely abbreviated as to be identifiable only to select colleagues, specially schooled in classical literature. So we encounter indecipherable references like b.i.146 and defin.v.65. To add to the difficulty, a key to such arcane abbreviations is rarely provided, thus ensuring that the interested layperson who wishes to delve into ancient sources, or at least fathom what they might be, is properly stymied. Furthermore, the classicists make a point of not listing the ancient sources in their otherwise copious bibliographies, not even in the original Latin. With the help of lexicons, and after a deep immersion in the literature, the persevering lay listener, including the non-classicist historian, eventually might be able to divine that Sal.Belug71 is a reference to Sallust Bellum Jugurthinum, and is available in English as Sallust's The Jugurthine War. Persistent lay listeners might even be able to discover, as I did, that Plin period NH V11.91-2 
is a reference not to the younger Pliny, but to Gaius Secundus Plinius, Maior, Naturalis Historia, that is, the elder Pliny's natural history. But what are the unanointed to do with ad q.fr.ii.iv.1 or q.f.i.i, which happens to be ad quintum fratrim, or to Cicero's brother Quintus. Knowing enough Latin to guess that ep.adcais, or sometimes it is just adcais, is epistulae ad caesarum, one can conclude that someone had written a letter to Caesar. But when not even an abbreviation of the author's name is given, we would have to know enough on our own to guess that it was Sallust, and not the more likely Cicero, whose letters survive in such abundance. This abstruse mode of citation is used even by progressive scholars such as Neil Wood and the incomparable G.E.M. de Saint-Croix, both of whom otherwise seem interested in communicating with audiences beyond the antiquarian priesthood. One of the few exceptions to such pedantry is Arthur D. Kahn, who in his The Education of Julius Caesar, 1986, provides a listing of the ancient sources he used, both in English and Latin, as well as a key to their abbreviations, which is only one of several reasons for welcoming his book. Herein, I give only English-language titles for ancient sources, and without abbreviation. Because some classical works come in so many editions, I used the classical text notation rather than the page number of a particular edition, for that is the more reliable way of locating the citation. Some works in English translation present problems of their own as when various editions and translations of the same volume have been published under different titles. Thus, Lucan's epic poem used to be called The Pharsalia and can still be found in library catalogs under that title, but the title given in ancient manuscripts is De Bello Civili. So I follow the English language path taken by J.D. Duff in 1928 and probably by others before him and cite Lucan's work as the Civil War. Another example. The very first English edition of the complete surviving works of Dio Cassius, 1905, was entitled Annals of Rome by its translator, Herbert Baldwin Foster, who argues that the Romans would have called it Annales and not Historiae. That Dio was a Greek who wrote in Greek seems not to have troubled Foster, who decided, not implausibly, that Dio, who lived in Italy and was a Roman senator and praetor, was more Roman in his lifestyle than Greek, though the two lifestyles were much intermingled at times. I rely on Foster's translation and possess all six volumes of that precious 1905 first edition of Annals of Rome, but I cite Dio's work as Roman history, because that has long been the more commonly used title. Even works originally written in English can present citation problems. Thus, it would be misleading to give a volume number when referencing Edward Gibbons's magnum opus, since it comes in three, six, seven, and eight volume editions, and even in one volume abridgments. Furthermore, the title itself has been changed. 
It was originally a history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but most editions printed over the past 60 years leave off the first three words of that title, as do I. The chapters of the various editions, except for some of the abridged ones, are numbered exactly as Gibbon had numbered them. Therefore, I cite the chapter number, as do most writers, asking the listener to keep in mind that I am relying on the Heritage Press 1946 volumes for page numbers. Roman names can present a daunting challenge to both the writer and indexer, who must wrestle with a trinomena web of prinomen, nomen, and cognomen. The prinomen is the given name, of which there are relatively few in use. Gaius, Lucius, Marcus, Quintus, Servius, Titus, Tiberius, and others. The nomen is the family or gens name, usually ending in I-U-S. And the cognomen is an adopted third name, whose original function was to distinguish the individual from other males with the same first and family names. The cognomen usually was a nickname, focusing on some physical characteristic or other idiosyncratic feature, sometimes humorous and not necessarily flattering. Thus, Ovid was Naso, nose. Licinius was Macare, skinny. Tullius was Cicero, chickpea. Over time, the cognomen was taken seriously enough, functioning as a kind of additional surname. To further complicate things, some upper-class Roman males are regularly referenced to by their nomen. Thus, Gaius Cassius Longinus is known to us as Cassius. Others are better known by their cognomen, as with Gaius Julius Caesar and Marcus Tullius Cicero. Only during the last days of the Republic did it become customary to call an individual by the gens name or nomen. So throughout his life, Caesar was known as Gaius Caesar. Still, I cleave to the more common present-day usage, referring to him as Julius Caesar. Adding further to the confusion, some writers will use the nomen and others the cognomen for the same person. In some books, C. Licinius Macer is Licinius, and in others he is Macer. Sometimes writers do not use enough names referring only to, let us say, Cornelius Lentulus, leaving us to decide whether it be Cornelius Lentulus Crus, Cornelius Lentulus Marcellinus, Cornelius Lentulus Niger, or Cornelius Lentulus Spinther. In moments like that, we might wish all available names were regularly used. As if Roman names themselves are not sufficiently challenging, most classicist scholars, in keeping with their pedantry, take pleasure in indexing prominent people by their more obscure nomen rather than their better-known cognomen. My practice of choosing whatever names are most readily recognizable to the listener is at variance with the usual approach. Rarely can one find Sulla, Cato, Cicero, Gracchus, Brutus, or Caesar listed under their commonly recognized names in a book index. Instead, Cicero is indexed under Tullius, Caesar under Iulius, or less frequently under Julius, and Brutus under Unius. 
One of Rome's most prominent optimate families, the Metelli, are not listed under Metellus, but under their rarely referred to nomen, Caecilius. In this way, readers who have not mastered the intractable web of Roman names are further deprived of ready access. For well-known personages, I resort to the anglicized forms that are more familiar to the modern English-language listener. Hence, there was nobody in ancient Rome named Pompey or Mark Antony, but those are the names provided herein, instead of Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus and Marcus Antonius. Spellings of Roman names can change. Thus Gaius is also Caius. I stay all the way with Gaius. Calgacus is sometimes Galgacus, and Gnaeus or Canaeus can be Gnaeus or Canaeus. But in abbreviation, the name reverts to the C form. Thus, Gaius Julius Caesar is always abbreviated as C Julius Caesar for Caius. Don't ask why. Names can change with one's destiny. Gaius Octavius took the name C. Julius Caesar Octavianus when he became Julius Caesar's heir, and as noted in Chapter 10, the Senate later voted him the title of Augustus, which quickly became his name. So we know him as Emperor Augustus or Caesar Augustus. Gnaeus Pompeius became Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great, Magnus being a self-promotional cognomen that Pompey adopted in imitation of Alexander the Great. Name choices also loom in regard to early historians. There are still disputes about whether Gaius Salustius Crispus should be called Gaius Crispus Salustius. I refer to him simply as Sallust, as do present-day historians, except for the more pedantic holdouts. In the case of Cassius Diococeanus, we have someone with two cognomina and no known prinomen, not unusual for a Greek. Some writers, preferring the Roman style, call him Cassius Dio, nomen and cognomen. Others, thinking that in Greek the nomen comes after the cognomen, refer to him as Dio Cassius. To confuse us further, there were Greeks who utilized the Roman style for their own names, and Romans who preferred the Greek style. As far as I can see, there is no compelling argument for selecting one over the other. I use Dio Cassius simply because that seems to be the more common form today. This concludes The Assassination of Julius Caesar, A People's History of Ancient Rome by Michael Parenti. Narrated by David Stifle, a member of SAG-AFTRA. Copyright 2003 by Michael Parenti. This unabridged audiobook is published by arrangement with The New Press and was produced in the year 2022 by Tentor Media Incorporated, a division of recorded books which holds the copyright there too. Please visit Tentor.com for more information on our growing library of unabridged audiobooks. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.